Welcome to this. Okay. Uh, welcome to the building science. To the building science podcast. 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 Welcome to the building science podcast. Bringing the human factor to architecture and design. Brought to you by Positive Energy in Austin, Texas. Hello. Hello and welcome back. Welcome back to the Building Science Podcast. So glad you're here. I'm Christoph Irwin, here today solo. Miguel is uber busy with other things this morning. And I really just wanted to go through some ideas that I shared with the AIA Austin community last week at their summer conference. I've had a lot of really positive feedback, people telling me that they learned a lot, they really put the pieces together, and that it was an important and timely message for them. And so I thought I'd just run through it. What we're talking about today are the basic principles for healthy buildings. You know, you could say specifically healthy buildings for humid climates, but these basic principles apply all over. When it comes to talking about healthy buildings or sick buildings, in fact, one of the things I think we should start with is recognizing that words matter. And I think we're going to edit this out. That's my dog scratching. Just remember that words matter, specifically the words healthy buildings or sick buildings, right? There is no such thing as a healthy building or a sick building. It's people. It's occupants. Buildings can promote the health or damage the health of the occupants. And it's just very important, very simple message to recognize that buildings don't get uncomfortable or unhealthy. It's occupants that do. And specifically where this comes in is in the notion of conditioned space, right? The idea is that when we say conditioned space, you know, air conditioning, what we typically mean is air cooling, but conditioning actually implies conditioned for a purpose, right? Conditioned for humans to be in there, right? And ideally to promote human thriving. I mean, we live in a very technologically sophisticated world where we have uh, access to just tremendous sumptuousness and, and tremendous refinement in the products and systems that we access every day. But our homes, check it out, our homes are absolutely a laggard technology. Fundamental systems, you know, on the enclosure side are, are changing incrementally, but they're roughly the same as what they've been for many, many decades, similar for mechanical systems. So getting back into healthy buildings, the air, the air that you're breathing is one of the themes today. We're going to be talking about that. And we are immersed in air all the time, so much so that we don't really pay attention to it. We just assume it's fine. Generally speaking, we as a culture, we're, we're very into uh, health consciousness, right? We're becoming very clear on, you know, what we eat and drink, you know, the, what is our cutting board made of? What do we store our food and water in? We're getting this tremendous sophistication for health when it comes to our food. You know, think about, you know, the growth of the organic food section. But when it comes to the organic food section in the building world, we walk right by it. You know, it's not a matter that it doesn't exist. It's just a matter of we don't engage in it. We think about our homes, what do we do there, right? We, we keep our families there, our babies, our parents, our loved ones. We feed them, we sit on the couch and read stories with them, right? And what we don't realize is that oftentimes we're not properly equipped to evaluate whether we've done a good job 
creating a good indoor conditioned space. And what I mean by that is, you know, one specific thing is we can't see the particles and the gas phase pollutants that can cause negative health outcomes. We simply can't, you know, go in and sniff out a flame retardant or, you know, the perfluorinated chemicals that we use as water repellents or stain repellents in our couches, for instance, you know, sitting on a couch with, you know, your grandmother is sitting on a couch with your daughter. And what's in the couch? You know, what's coming out of there? If you haven't read the article from The Nation recently on bromated flame retardants, it's, it's well worth reading. And it goes beyond what's in the couch. It's what's in the cosmetics, what's in the cream, what's in the fragrance that's in the, you know, the laundry detergent that you used. Or is there an air freshener in the room? Things like that. But Getting back to IAQ, IAQ has impacts in you know many, many areas, and the three main ones that I want to touch on in this introduction are indoor air quality and epigenetics, indoor air quality and cognition, and indoor air quality and sleep. And so epigenetics, you know, this is probably the elephant in the room. This is the bomb. I mean, if, if you don't know about the fact that genes can shift, your, your genes, your child's genes can be caused to shift in the way they express in a single lifetime, right? Sorry, Darwin, but we've learned since that environmental exposures can cause gene changes in a single lifetime, right? There's the the famous story about the the famine in Holland uh, where the parents were exposed to extreme hunger and food deprivation and their kids grew up with genes expressed to try to cope with that, which then led to negative health outcomes when they didn't experience that environment. But more close to home, um, pregnancy, right? So the particles that a mother breathes, breathes and ingests get into their blood and go into the baby's blood. You know, the number of gas phase pollutants and particle phase pollutants that we find in cord blood is scary, or it should be scary if we know about it. But specifically, there's this, there's this term called methylation, which is basically gene regulation, you know, prenatal gene regulation by the parent, and it is impacted by particulate matter, right? By PM2.5, for example, correlates that as you increase the concentration of PM2.5, you decrease the functionality of methylation or, or gene regulation. So that's IAQ, indoor air quality and epigenetics. Okay, so IAQ and cognition, right? So can what we breathe impact how we think? Well, surprisingly, absolutely. More impactful and more broadly, you know, pervasively, let's say, impactful than we had realized. The Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health, and they have the, what is it, the Center for Health and the Global Environment, I think it's called. They're releasing, there's a website called The Cog. I think that's what it's called, but Google uh, Harvard The Cog and you'll find it. And, you know, what we're learning is that the benefits of a good building and good air in a building actually impact many different metrics associated with decision-making, right? So we have, you know, basic activity, applied activity, focused activity, task organization or orientation, crisis response, information seeking, information usage, 
you know, things like that, strategy making, and all of those aspects of cognition decrease with, let's say, uh, increasing CO2 levels is one of the, the pollutants that we're correlating it with right now. And it might turn out to be that CO2 is, is a correlate, but it's actually a proxy for something else that's the causal factor. But still, the underlying conclusion that indoor air quality, you know, what's in the indoor air, indoor air chemistry, indoor air microbiology, however you want to refer to it, that it impacts the way you think and the way you make decisions, right? And think about that the next time you're flying on an airplane where CO2 typically is quite high, at least from my uh, unofficial measurements by taking my CO2 detector onto some planes. IAQ and sleep is an extension of this, right? If, it, if it's impacting brain function in terms of cognition, you know, falling asleep and sleeping deeply is absolutely a brain function. It's a multi-step. It's actually quite complicated. It's a good thing we don't have to consciously fall asleep. It would be be harder to do. But indoor air quality and sleep are also correlating. So you know, what we're talking about is uh, air quality affecting sleep and next day performance. And there's a number of studies out there on that. But you know, I think the big one is really this this epigenetics, right? So this is the gift that keeps on giving, right? Environmental exposures, here's a quote, environmental exposures can have a profound and lasting impact on the health of patients and future generations, right? So that's from the American Council of Obstetricians and Gynecologists. So this is referring to pregnancy impacts, right? So that's a big deal. Those of you who are listening, you are almost certainly involved in some way in delivering the indoor space to our society, you know, the design of, the construction of, the appreciation of, or maybe you're a homeowner, maybe you're just an interested party because you live indoors and you, and you understand that that is where we spend all our time. Right? I think we've always heard it bandied around that we spend 90% of our lives indoors. Well, that figure comes out of Lawrence Berkeley National Lab's their uh, human activity pattern study. So you can Google that, LBNL, National Human Activity Pattern Study. It's actually 86.9% according to that study, so 87% of the time, total time spent indoors. But what is really needing to be expressed is that 70% of the time, the average human life in this study was spent in a residence. It was actually 687 but roughly 30% of your life is spent in one room in your residence. Guess which one, right? It's your bedroom. You know, in terms of environmental epidemiology and exposure science, right, we need to start studying what's in our bedroom, what's in our sheets, what's in our pillow, what's in the sleep zone, what's in the area right around your nose and mouth when you're sleeping. But not just that, right? Because we know that, you know, Pollutants can go from the air into our blood directly through our skin, right? Transdermal uptake can happen. But, you know, largely speaking, what I want to stress here with this is that we are engaged as a society right now in something like looking for our keys under the streetlight, right? You know, you ask somebody, what are you looking for? Oh, I dropped my keys. I dropped them way over there, but it's dark there. So I'm going to try to find them here where it's light. It's obviously ridiculous. But why is it that so many of our leading programs are focused on commercial buildings, right? Why are all these big rating systems not focused on the home, right? Well, obviously, partly because there's less money there. It's many smaller projects, harder to really, you know, 
prime the pump and get the program thriving. It's also, it's a juggernaut of an industry, a super tanker to turn. It is not an easy situation. There are multiple interconnected stakeholders and we need them all to move, you know, at once or all being willing to move at once. And these podcasts, thank you for listening. Please share them. They're part of that, right? They're part of that effort to try to change, you know, the basic understanding of conditioned space. Conditioned space being our, you know, our strategy for where we do with ourselves. We store ourselves inside these buildings, inside conditioned space. It's basically a fishbowl strategy. You're swimming around in a fishbowl right now, even if it's a car, right? That's a conditioned space. By the way, the Lawrence Berkeley study estimates around 5.5%, 5.5% of the human life is spent in a vehicle, which fortunately is less than you spend outdoors. So you do spend more time outdoors, 7.6% of your life than you do in a vehicle. But by the way, total time spent indoors, that's not a home, right? It's 11% plus 2% plus 5.5%. So 16, 17% of your life in a building that's not your home. So what's in our fishbowl, right? If we have this fishbowl strategy, what are we swimming around in right now that we're not noticing? Well, first of all, air, which we've talked about before in this program. Air is more than you think. It's, it's a heavy uh, fluid. It's a compressible fluid, but it's in your home, and it weighs thousands of pounds. And there are probably tens or up to, you know, on the order of 100 pounds of water vapor in that air. And then there are the, you know, the, the big three. And frankly, saying the big three categories, it's not easy to categorize. Just to categorize what's in your home, you have to make some decisions. But where I've pulled them is to the three, is particles. You know, this is the PM10, the coarse particles, PM2.5, the fine particles. And, and by the way, it means particulate matter, 10 microns and less, PM2.5. Particulate matter, 2.5 microns and less. And then the ultrafines, which could be called PM0.1, I guess. So it's particulate matter, 0.1 microns, or 100 nanometers and less. And then there's gas phase pollutants. So that's the second category. First one is particles. Second one is gas phase pollutants. And this is the volatile organic compound. This is the semi-volatile organic compound. You know, the... The big thing to remember here is that these are chemical pollutants in your home, right? Chemical toxins in many cases, and toxins is a word that we need to think about language. Toxin means poisonous. Toxin means definite negative health outcomes. Particles, gas phase pollutants, and the third one is bioaerosols, and this is a rich one that's really growing. This is where the indoor microbiome is studying. But right in the air all around you right now are bacteria, viruses, protozoa, fungal spores, archaea, which are ancient microscopic critters, dust mites, right? It's a rich ecosystem that's interacting with itself. It's interacting with you. And it's interacting via surface chemistry with the mind-blowingly large amount of surface area in your in you know in the home. So if you look around yourself right now, let's say you're in the office, in your house, in your car, the surfaces, you know, all the nooks and crannies, <laughs> every fiber in a carpet, right? That's the it's a cylinder and there's surface areas, right? You know, the the world of what's in our fishbowl is largely lost on us. 
we don't get it. So today, right, this, this is a huge topic, but today we're really focusing on homes and we're really focusing on indoor air quality. So to define home, what we're saying is home is basically where your bed is. Wherever you put your bed, that's what we're going to call your home. Your bed being, you know, a third of your life. Home being roughly 70% of your life. And indoor air quality is, you know, it's part of this human factor building science that we really want to apply to the design of homes. Um, but it's just one aspect, right? So if you were to think about the overall environment that you're immersed in, it is obviously the quality of the air that you're in. It's also the quality of the light. It's the quality of the sound, the quality of the odors. Are there vibrations? Are, you know, are you even not detecting them neocortically, but maybe limbic vibrations, you know, vibrations that your body picks up that you don't realize? The quality of the water that you drink and bathe in, the quality of the microbiome, and of course, thermal comfort. Right? So that's the list of IEQ features, indoor environmental quality. And today we're talking about indoor air quality. And I want to just you know shout out some thanks here because we're going to jump into the, the five basic principles for healthy buildings. And this is peer-reviewed medical research and indoor environmental chemistry research, maybe even some outdoor environmental chemistry research that's really coming into the mainstream now. At least I hope it is. There are many, many good people you can follow on Twitter to get this stuff out. The five principles we're about to go through are fully credited. You know, they were distilled and first kind of articulated, articulated in a pithy way by Bill Nazaroff, from University of California, Berkeley. Um, and I heard that on Radio Joe Hughes, IAQ Radio. And so here they are. Here's, here's the basic principles, right? Five principles. Ten words. Start with a good enclosure. Minimize indoor emissions. Keep it dry. Ventilate. And filter. So that's where we're going with this podcast. But before we go farther, let's just take a minute and think about where we are. Where we are. Where we are. How did we get here? How did we get here? Where we are. How did we get here? Where is here when it comes to the indoor environment? What is the current state of homes, and, and how did we get here? Well, if you want to just reflect on the current state of you know, homes, apartments, townhomes, just think about these two pairs of two words, right? Especially those of you who are in the industry. What does it mean when you hear the term builder grade? Builder grade. What does that mean? Does that mean top quality, right? What if you hear the term developer-driven? We've all maybe had, many of us have had the opportunity to work on a developer-driven project. And what does that mean? What does that really mean, right? You know, William Jared Levitt, you know, could be the, the founder of suburbia. He has that sort of famous or infamous quote, any damn fool can build homes. What counts is how many you can sell and for how little, right? So that was roughly 70 years ago, seven decades ago. And it's kind of like the iceberg. The, the, the tip of the iceberg is high design and refined sumptuousness, you know, the program, the convenience, all those things. 
But what's underneath? What are the, what is the, like if there's three kind of subtle but pervasive guiding principles that have led to where homes are now? They're probably going to be something like eyeballs, egos, and first cost, right? And that is a shame because that seems to imply that, oh, well, the everything's good, you know, uh, the home is going to be durable, it's going to have good indoor air quality, it's going to be energy efficient, it's going to help with our sustainability goals culturally. And because all those dimensions are, are satisfied, it's reasonable to go ahead and think about first cost and visual aesthetics and whether the home helps me to feel, um, you know, important and solid and permanent, right? Ego. So what's our goal? You know, where are we going, right? Well, I hope where we're going is home as health intervention, architect as advocate, or the whole project team as an advocate for that. Right now what we have is it's as though project teams are up at the salad bar of home design and they assume all the ingredients on the salad bar are good for you, right? And and there's a lot of things there that aren't, you know, building materials that are toxic and there's designs that don't recognize massing orientation and aperture principles and therefore hemorrhage energy for the life of the building. So, you know, who's putting your salad together? Who's making your food? Do they know the difference between a condiment and uh, a toxin? That's a, that's a good question. We always hear the term, you know, form follows function. Right? Frank Lloyd Wright famously used that term. And what he was meaning was, you know, is it, is it a factory? Is it a library? Is it a home? Right? If so, that's the function. And then the form should follow that. But really, there's a deeper level of function that is or should be everywhere. And that is form follows the function of this space creating human thriving. Right? There's tremendous unrealized upside in our buildings, um, and now it's time to go there. Let's, let's go there. So the five principles, we'll go through them fairly briefly here, but start with the good enclosure. Boy, oh boy, talk about trying to go through something briefly. Um, the five principles altogether, you know, start with a good enclosure, minimize indoor emissions, keep it dry, ventilate, and filter. That encapsulates all of building science, including the emerging adjacent you know, areas that get into human factored building design. But starting with a good enclosure, you know, let's look at the word good, right? Well, what, what does good mean? Well, good means functional, right? It's going to do the things that you want it to do reliably for a long time. Um, the enclosure, you know, there's one way is to call it an environmental separator. But, you know, let's talk about what the enclosure is. The enclosure is the piece of your building that sits on the ground that, you know, connects it to the earth, right? So that's the foundation. It could be a basement, a slab, a crawl space, pier and beam. You know, there's lots of different ways, but it's the foundation, the walls, and the roof, right? It's the six-sided six box, the six-sided environmental separator that actually creates this thing that we call indoors or this thing that we call conditioned space. A few things to really keep in mind about the enclosure. Right? We hear about passive house, but really the word passive, what it's pointing to is the enclosure is the passive, durable, functional assembly that is the gift that keeps on giving. It is a situation where we have really one good chance to get it right because it's going to be inconvenient to fix forever. Right? So 
that's really the enclosure, right? That's what we want to think about. When you think about the enclosure, think about those elements of the home that are passive, durable, and functional. You have one good chance to get it right, and it's going to be inconvenient to fix forever, right? So why are we talking about the enclosure on a podcast associated with indoor environmental quality, right? Well, there's a few very close connections between the enclosure and indoor environmental quality. First is it defines the breathing zone of the conditioned space, right? So it defines the area or the volume of air that you're going to pull into your lungs. The second is it mediates moisture transport processes. I mean, what, what I mean by that is it's either going to leak water or not leak water. So the second is it mediates moisture transport processes, which is, you know, unfortunately for me, that's the way the, my brain makes those words. But, you know, what that means is it's either going to prevent the building materials in the indoor environment from, from being wet, you know, damp, moist, or not, right? So this means rain and groundwater. This means air transported moisture. This means diffusion through building materials, capillarity. I mean, there's a lot of building science here, right? Sorption, suction curves. You can go on and on and on, but really it's the enclosure and it's important for indoor environmental quality because of two things, right? It defines the breathing zone of the conditioned space, which we just said. Also, due to the better living through chemistry and, you know, living in the chemical age like we are, the the materials, the very materials we choose to build our enclosure out of can be a permanent source of toxic air pollutants. Lovely, you know, enough with occupants as science experiments. You know, it's, it's absolutely what we currently do. We choose to put materials into our enclosure that we hope aren't going to have a health outcome, but we won't find out for a few years or a few decades. Right? Do you remember bromated flame retardants in pajamas? I can remember my Superman pajamas with the feet in them being thrown away right in the, quote, prime of their life as far as I was concerned as a little kid. And that's because they had bromated flame retardants in them. That's not an enclosure, but it was an enclosure for my young me. So that's the enclosure and why it's important for indoor air quality. And just, you know, let's think broadly now. An enclosure is, it's a volume of the Earth's atmosphere that we decide this is the volume of the Earth's atmosphere I am going to stake a claim to. It's going to be my fishbowl. It's going to be where I swim around with my family, you know, my loved ones, my babies, my elderly parents. And I want it to, to provide certain things for me, right? And what do you want it to provide, right? Health, safety, durability, comfort, aesthetics. I hope that's not getting lost. Aesthetics is obviously very, very important. So there's classic building science, right? The things like the ventilated rain screens and window flashings and, gosh, it just goes on and on. The hegemony of enclosurism, right? I've talked about that before. But basically, talking about the enclosure in 2018 triggers for me enough already, right? It's taking the air out of the room. It's stealing all the bandwidth in the conversation around project teams. Um, and I do admit that it's not done perfectly all the time. There are many people with, with deep questions and important questions that need to get resolved. But generally speaking, check this out and tell me if this isn't ringing true for you. Generally speaking, people spend much more time and effort and they know the vocabulary and the underlying concepts related to enclosure systems. 
foundations, walls, roofs, right? We know the insulation, the control layers, various materials, continuous insulation, peel and stick, you know. Anyway, sheet applied. There's so many different ways you can go with enclosures. And generally speaking, we know them. We know the path through. And there's podcasts on this series earlier. I think they're called Living Inside Anywhere. You can listen to them. But what I want to remind us of is that, you know, the enclosure is obviously very important. It's controlling the air that we breathe. We got those pollutants. But there's this whole other boot to drop, and that is specifically the air distribution system of the home, right? That obviously, or not obviously, but let me explain it then if you haven't thought about it this way. That flex duct and ductboard distribution system that is probably going to last, I don't know, 7 to 10, maybe 15 years max without having major issues, well, it's going to be inconvenient to fix forever. You did have one good chance to get it right. It is a passive in the sense that it just sits there. There's moving air through it. But it's passive, durable, and highly functional, right? You are never more intimate with your indoor environment than when you take the air deep into your lungs. Let's take a quick break and do that. Check this out. Do this. That was me taking a deep breath. Hope you did the same. One more time. Deep breath. The same time it takes to take a deep breath is the time it takes subsequent to that for that air to move from your alveoli into your blood. So the time it takes to go from the room in front of you down to your alveoli, which are the little balls that where the gas exchange goes between your blood and the outdoor world. So from the outdoor world to your alveoli is the same time scale as from your alveoli to the blood. I mean, it has to be. It's, it's a cyclical process. And then from the blood to the alveoli, the alveoli out to the air is the time it takes to exhale, right? So all the time. So try to listen to the next few minutes of the podcast constantly aware that you are pulling in the air around you and that it is filled with particles, gases, and bioaerosols. So just a little more on my mild rant here on air distribution systems. Are they given sufficient attention? Absolutely not, right? You know, there are some, so many people, Allison Bales has come into mind, Energy Vanguard, are just championing, you know, picking up the, the cause here of like, enough already, let's make good air distribution systems. And he has some fantastic pictures. He has the Kraken out there. He's doing a wonderful series right now on his blog, about mechanical design. And one of the main things that you can do with flex duct that's unfortunate is you can do origami with it. You can distort it. You can insult it. You can wedge it into tight spaces. You can cram it between trusses. You can twist it into a pretzel. And, well, two things happen. One is, incredulously, somehow air will still come out of it. But the other thing that happens is the fluid dynamics, <laughs> the uh, energy of the fan that is pushing air through the duct system is constantly wasted overcoming needless friction, right? We've talked about this before, but like you have a really sweet, energy-efficient car, and you know, meaning you, have, you buy really sweet, energy-efficient mechanical systems, you know, heat pumps, let's say, and yet you don't pay attention to the air distribution system. That's like not inflating the tires on your car. 
for the life of the car, you get one good chance to inflate the tires. And because it, you know, it's not about your eyeball, your ego, or a low first cost, or actually it is about low first cost. <laughs> um, it's, it's out of sight, out of mind, out of budget. That's wrong. That's not okay. Right? Um, it's common, and information isn't going to change it, but the reason I said that's wrong, that's not okay, is what really is going to change it, thinking about behavior change, is not shaming, but it's emotion. It's you right now. You have some influence over projects. You have some stake in the outcome. And what do you, what do you insist on, right? You as an architect, do you just make the visual, spatial, you know, you do your program, you go through SD, DD, CD, and you don't engage with where the lungs of the building are going to go or what they're going to be made of? We're so thrilled at Positive Energy that we have so many fantastic architects that say no to that. They say, no, we're going to engage. We're going to integrate the lungs of the building into our architectural design. We're going to, we're going to put health, indoor air quality, the energy it takes to move the air through those systems. We're going to think about fluid dynamics. We're going to listen to our engineers. As an engineer, it's, you know, it's thrilling and it's a, it's a great honor to be on those project teams. We are trying to be very reasonable. We're trying to only push back when pushback is needed. We suggest other alternatives. We try to brainstorm. We are soaking up. We are grateful to receive architectural feedback in terms of here's the look I'm going for. Here's what I'm trying to achieve. You know, when you're trying to achieve a certain look in a building, it's unfortunate that one of the looks you're trying to achieve often is that there's no space conditioning, that it's magically conditioned, right? And, you know, that can happen pretty effectively if you're living in Southern California. But here, I live in Austin, it's very hot and very humid. And the air, keeping it dry, ventilated, and filtered is hugely important. And we need systems to do that, and they need to enter the room. They need to, the air needs to enter the room in a way that it mixes with the air. That means it needs to have enough energy, you know, like a bowling ball mixing with the bowling pins. We need air to go tumbling around in the room so that it entrains the particles and gases so that they can get to the filter and be removed. We need the air to go tumbling around in the room so that the thermal and humidity conditions become mixed to improve human comfort, right? So... If square tires, or let's say it this way, if round tires were considered ugly, would we build cars with square tires or triangular tires? No, I mean, tires are round because it's a function. It's a functional, it's a flow process. Air conditioning, ducts and registers and diffusers have properties associated with the fluid dynamics that they mediate, and it's functional. It's not just an aesthetic inconvenience. So on the, the talk, I had several slides showing pictures of um, highly insulted. That's Jesse Bear, Labrador Jesse Bear coming up. We had several slides. It's, you know, it's uh, like, I guess, um, eye candy or maybe, maybe like um, salacious shock factor. But one of the ones that I guess I'll describe for you here is a, is a ductboard supply trunk. So a long, skinny, rectangular, you know, box, let's say, made a duckboard. And there's the before cleaning and after cleaning picture. And the before cleaning, it's just coated with mold. I mean, white mold and dust, and it's, it's, it's disgusting. Afterward, it's got much less, but it's still dirty, and it's still duckboard, and it's still going to be able to accumulate that. 
Now, granted, it's accumulated that probably because there's a leak to a building cavity somewhere. But the crazy thing about this duckboard is this was the supply airline for a home spa. You know, this means probably some exercise happening, probably increased rates of taking the air into your lungs and into your blood, putting it back out. The fluid dynamic design of flex duct systems, duckboard plenums, is, is usually ignored. You know, low first cost rules, qualities, not even present. Um, and yet there are also examples all around here in Austin, all around the country, of fantastic metal distribution systems. You know, it's not easy to say because I know people don't like to hear it. Actually, it is easy to say, but I know people don't like to hear it. Certainly on the supply side, that supply plenum, it should not be made of duckboard. It should be made of metal. The areas that the trunk lines or the takeoffs leave the plenum are not just random, right? There's rules around that. But even that, right, even having just a the radial plenum where you you blow the air into a box, and then out of the box, you have this kind of like hub and spoke distribution. That's not the only way to do it. There's other ways to do plenums. Air distribution is about systems, right? Your health delivery systems in a home are systems. They're not products. They are not your air filter alone. They are not your heat pump alone. They are not your dehumidifier alone. They are not your ERV alone. They are those thoughtfully selected components combined with the permanent, passive, durable air distribution components. Well, there you go. I think I buried that one in the ground. So start with a good enclosure. Number two is minimize indoor emissions. Another huge one. Like, where do you begin, right? We talked about particles, gases, and bioaerosols or what's in our fishbowl. Well, those are emissions many times. So what we're really talking about when we talk about minimizing indoor emissions is we're talking about minimizing indoor emissions of pollutants. Pollutants, right? So what is a pollutant? Well, Wikipedia <laughs> says substance that ad- pollutant. Substance that adversely affects the health of a community of living organisms. That's microbes, plants, animals, and people. So adversely affects the health of a community, right? So we don't want these pollutants in here because they're adverse health effects. They are incredibly common. They are also, you know, the emission, pollutant emissions in an indoor environment is the the initial causal factor for a chain that leads to health effects, right? So the, the chain, just to connect it a little bit, you have emissions, and by the way, they can be outdoor emissions that make their way into the indoor space, right? And in that sense, they are emissions of outdoor origin that are in the indoor space. They can also obviously be emitted from sources indoors. But you have some emissions that lead to a certain concentration of pollutants. That concentration can be considered an exposure for you when you're in the space. There's no problem yet. You have emissions, you have concentrations, and you have exposure. Problem starts when those three, let's say the concentration and the exposure, lead to you touch a surface and you rub your eye, or you touch a surface and you put your finger in your mouth, or you breathe in the material, right? Or the material is taken in directly through your skin, transdermally. So for whatever reason, you have intake of a pollutant. And then that intake can be characterized by a dose. And at a certain dose, it can be toxic and have health effects, right? So what we're really studying now, the, the science of the indoor environment or indoor chemistry, 
is really studying the emissions and the concentrations, right? you know, and then the health science is, is stepping in more on exposure intake, dose and health effects. So if we're talking about indoor pollutant emissions, there's basically two ways to think about it, right? There's active sources and passive sources. Active sources, you know, another fancy way to say that is anthropogenic sources. This means derived from human activity. So what's in the indoor space that's derived from human activity that is like the number one pollutant? Well, it's PM 2.5. It's these small particles that go deep into our alveoli and sit there. And they're not just innocuous little, you know, chunks of rock that just sit there forever. They are incredibly small particles, and they are coated, kind of like the candy coating on an M&M, with all kinds of nasty chemical gases, or you know, possibly coated with, and, and likely coated with. So we talked about combustion exhaust outside being a, a large source of PM2.5. There's also combustion that occurs inside, and one of the main sources of indoor PM2.5, one of the main indoor sources of PM2.5, is cooking. Cooking is chemistry. The flame itself is a chemical reaction. It's an oxidative reaction. All kinds of nitrogen and sulfur oxides coming off of that, water vapor coming off of that, unburned gas. You know, so cooking with gas, like it's funny, cooking with cooking with gas, right? It's even like a, a term. Hey, man, I'm cooking with gas. It's like a, a praise term. Holy moly, is that misaligned? Cooking with gas indoors, health disaster, right? And what it means specifically is your range hood, you know, your exhaust ventilation system for your cooking situation, that's important, right? We'll talk briefly about that going forward. So active sources of pollutants, other ones inside a home. There is those uh, air fresheners, those Glade plug-ins. I shouldn't use a brand name, but, you know, air freshener could also be called endocrine-disrupting chemical emitter, <laughs> It sounds like I'm trying to be salacious, but, you know, look at some of the peer-reviewed medical literature. Yes, Jesse B. It's just true. It's just the chemicals that come off of these things are known endocrine-disrupting chemicals. Similarly with um, someone who wants to have a, you know, instead of a TV, you're going to have like a decorative gas fireplace that's not vented. Unvented combustion inside a home. Holy moly. What a stellar bad idea. Right. You, if, if you understood the overlap of the health sciences and the building sciences, that's a non-starter. If you want that, that's great. Put it outside. You know, put it on your porch. So water vapor, right? Keeping your building dry is so important. We'll talk about that next. But that steamy shower that we all love, yeah, it's great as long as you're in the steamy shower, but you want that water vapor to be enjoyed by you and then to leave the building. You don't want it to linger, right? So that means moisture-sensing bath fans as, as a no-brainer and containing the, the steam, proper material selection in bathrooms, things like that. And the other active source that's really another huge one, it's us. It's the people, right? And, and you, Jesse. It's the dogs and the cats, it's these living beings, you know, we are actually like pig pen with particles and gases just bubbling off of us all the time. You know, they do studies of uh, indoor chemistry in, in classrooms and Axe body spray is a, is a common, uh, it's commonly measured, the basic ingredients of that, basic constituent molecules. And when the students leave the room, the 
spectra of environmental chemicals changes radically. It goes back to the background. It goes back more to the, what the building is emitting. Things like humidity increase emissions from building materials. Having bright, unshaded sunshine hitting a building material absolutely increases its emissions. So active sources of building, keep just summarizing, cooking, huge, showering, indoor combustion, air fresheners, right? These are the categories of that are really anthropogenic in the sense human sourced. They're also in the category of things we can do something about, right? When you cook, you can run your range hood. When you shower, you can run the bath fan. When you have that indoor combustion fireplace, because it's lovely, you can take it outdoors. You cannot plug in that air freshener. You can educate your project team. You can educate yourself. You can begin to internalize this message, reconcile it with your, your deep value preference system, and see what comes out. So then we have the more passive emissions of indoor spaces. And one of the big ones that's sort of hitting the news and is been in our buildings for a long, long time are flame retardants, bromated and halogenated flame retardants. This is such a big deal, right? This is, uh, this is in the foam padding of our furniture, right? It's why do you need a flame retardant in a baby's crib? Well, mainly because of lobbying <laughs> from the chemical industry and the tobacco industry. Babies don't smoke in bed that I know of, but infant mattresses are often and pajamas and baby seats, um, you know, strollers. It's just cuckoo that we take the most vulnerable populations and we put chemicals around them that cause negative health outcomes. So flame retardants are also in spray foam, something to be thinking about. It's in many, many textiles. It's in carpet padding. It's in carpet it's in our fabric. It's in our blinds. You know, speaking of blinds, right, going on a tiny bit of a... There's not just flame retardants in there. There's perfluorinated chemicals. There are phthalates, plasticizers. You know, like an old Venetian blind will be much more brittle than a new Venetian blind. Why is that? Because it has a plasticizer that helps it be supple. What happens over time? The plasticizer does what? It leaves. It goes into the indoor space. And where I think about this all the time is... I work out at a gym. I work out at the YMCA. It's just west of Austin. So I look back on Austin from the west when I'm riding my bike there. And in the afternoons, what do I see? I see walls, entire walls of these, you know, 20, 30-story condo buildings that are nothing but blinds, most of them vinyl, right? So first of all, you have a giant hole, you know, a thermal wound of the building because you put a big piece of glass there. Second of all, they're almost all shut, so no one's looking out of the glass. And instead, you have sunshine baking out chemical pollutants and toxins into the indoor space so that we can breathe it. So flame retardants, the next category of sort of emission, passive emissions is again in carpet. And these are the things that we use for nonstick coatings and water and stain repellency, right? Is it really worth our health impact to make sure that our carpet can be cleaned easily, right? Or that our couch can be cleaned easily. Um, you know, the one place I think it's reasonable to have water repellency coatings is your raincoat. That would be a good one. Your umbrella, right? But we should be careful, right? Be careful with nonstick cookware. Be careful when you're spraying that waterproofing on your boots. Do it outside, right? Hugely important here, but, you know, not really the subject of, of the building is personal care products, right? Creams, lotions, cosmetics, 
these things are loaded again with highly fluorinated chemicals, antimicrobials, plasticizers. Anything that says silky, creamy, anything that says scented, there's almost certainly uh, not something you want, right? So that means personal care products and laundry detergents, hand soaps, all of these things. You know, antimicrobials are in, is another category, right? So that would be three. Flame retardants, perfluorinated chemicals, and antimicrobials. Yeah, I think you get the picture. I don't need to keep going down the, the rabbit hole here, but there are many, many decisions to be made at many levels during the design and educating and advocating with your client such that they're careful about what they do, how they operate their home, what they bring into the home. And I refer you to sixclasses.org. So that's six spelled S-I-X, classes.org. Fantastic website. I, I cannot laud those people more for the work they're doing. I very much hope to interview somebody with that organization on this podcast one day, they have taken this kind of swirling chaos of all these different terms and labels, and they've said, okay, let's break it down into six classes. You can remember six things. So my last comment here before going on is about dust. So we've mentioned briefly that, that these particles that you breathe into your lungs are like candy-coated M&Ms. That's what dust is, right? And so dust is not just, you know, a chunk of skin cell or some of your hair pulverized down or outdoor, you know, limestone broken down. Dust is a, a rich chemical mixture and um, dust can be stirred up. Usually it's on the floor. I mean, um, I think and if we've heard said this on the podcast already, but I was reading a study here um, where they were talking about what the the particles and gases, you know, the constituent molecules that are in your blood from an indoor environment, you know, where are those particles and gases found in similar um, relative concentrations? And it's the floor. So this is kind of like the um, scientific way of validating the three-second rule, right? So if something drops on the floor, you might as well eat it because whatever's on the floor is already in your blood. You've already been exposed, you know, and, and so these are semi-volatile organic compounds. They can take decades and decades to stop outgassing. Volatile organic compounds, they usually go a little faster. These are the, the things like acetone and benzene and formaldehyde, terpenes, toluene, xylene, those kind of things. And we know there are targets for these things. That's what's interesting is there are... Not only are there targets for indoor chemical pollutants, right? Hazardous chemical gases in the home. We know what concentrations we want to keep them lower than. We also know that oftentimes we aren't. And this is coming because there's a class of products out there. You know, Fubot is an example of a class of products where you have um, the, the data age or the information age meets human health, right? So biometrics, your, your, your eye watch is in this category. But we know now that for relatively small amounts of money, $200, you can get a device that sits in your kid's bedroom or in your living room or kitchen, and it'll tell you about the temperature, the humidity, the total VOCs, the PM2.5 count, carbon dioxide, and carbon monoxide. And it'll send alerts right to your phone. It'll change colors in the room with you, a visual cue. Right? So we, there are ways to measure it, and there are known target concentrations. And when you're ready... Dig in, engage. When it comes to minimizing indoor emissions, I guess there's one other category, right? And it ties into the next one, which is keep it dry, which is 
you know, start with a good enclosure, minimize indoor emissions, keep it dry, ventilate and filter. But you really want to remember that bioaerosols emitted from molds and bacteria uh, and viruses, that these can, these populations rise and fall based on the environmental conditions you maintain inside the home. And since we, re- large to a large extent, we keep temperatures relatively same, sim- you know, stable, excuse me, it's the humidity, it's the internal moisture that really makes a difference. So when it comes to minimizing indoor emissions, I would say there's three things to remember. It's building material selection, client education, how they operate, what they choose to bring into their home, and then keeping it dry. These help reduce indoor emissions of pollutants. So the third, keep it dry. Right? So why is it so important to keep it dry? You know, I'm going to try to go briefly through this. We're getting probably toward the end of this episode. Keep it dry, ventilate, and filter are the next three. But keep it dry. I just want to remind us that water is the universal solvent. It is fantastic at taking things apart. You know, there's a, what is it, the line from the Tao Te Ching. Nothing in the world is as soft and yielding as water, yet for dissolving the hard and inflexible, nothing can surpass it. Right? That's the poetic way to say water takes things apart. It inexorably works to take that polyurethane surface on the chair sitting next to me here and make it sticky over time by changing the chemistry and emitting what it emer- you know did into the air so that I can ingest it, inhale it. Water has also got a pH of 7, which is interesting. You know, the, the range of 6 to 8 is called the zone of life, right? So first of all, it takes things apart, i.e. makes nutrients available. And secondly, it's the zone of life, right? It's neither acid nor base. It's in this, this middle range where, you know, frankly, cellular processes in life forms as we know it happen and thrive, right? And... Life thriving is absolutely an, uh, something we want to have indoors, but we don't want it to be fungal life indoors. I mean, we need fungi. We need them outdoors. They're part of the decomposer category. It's hugely important for our ecosystem, but not our indoor ecosystem. You know, you want to support your cellular processes, which means keep the humidity low, lower than 60% certainly, 55, 50. It's debatable where to set these set points. I use 55. If you're chemically sensitive, you can go lower. There are There are professionals that advise going very low. You know, I don't currently know of any crunchy science. I mean, the Danish Technical University is what I would consider the world leader on this. And, you know, 50% RH, 45% RH is considered low and, and plenty good to promote health indoors. So we want to keep it dry and we want to realize that not keeping it dry impacts the indoor microbiome, which impacts your human microbiome, right? The 14 trillion living beings and the ecosystem that is you is absolutely influenced by the ecosystem that it's immersed in. There's a great book. It's like a compendium of Sloan's research, and it's called Microbiomes of the Built Environment. I think it came out last year, 2017, might have been 2016. But it it has a chart in there where it talks about meta-studies on dampness and health. And it has studies that were done in 2004, 2009, and 2011. And then looking at evidenced relationships to to talk about um, associations between health outcomes and exposure to damp indoor environments. And so just a few here, right? So upper respiratory tract infection, 
wheeze, cough, asthma, exacerbation of asthma or development of asthma, chronic bronchitis, respiratory infections, right? Allergic rhinitis, eczema, common colds. There's an association between health outcomes and exposure to damp indoor environments and, and microbiomes that impact those things. So there's other reasons to keep air dry, and they're a little, you know, sort of um, happier than that, right? So thermal comfort is one. Indoor air quality, odor quality. The, we talked about the microbiome. I'm, I'm reading a list here. This is credit, credited to Robert Bean. Mucous membrane comfort. So this is like your respiratory system, your eyes, and your skin. By the way, tied into there, like nitrous, nitrogen oxides, oxides of nitrogen are absolutely respiratory uh, irritants. Keeping air dry helps with reducing VOC emissions with the process, by controlling hydrolysis, um, maintaining dimensional stability you know, in our woods, right? Cupped hardwood floors. So this is one we might have heard of, but it's really just you know, this small representative of this large class of benefits that we can have when we keep things dry. We don't want condensation on our window frames or on our glass. That's another reason to keep things dry. We don't want sorption in our sheetrock, in our wood, right? We don't want rotten decay to start and mold. And the last one is, you know, another one that we do think about, right? If it's a museum with sensitive artifacts, right? If you have really expensive antiques or musical instruments or, you know, very ornate trim inside your house, those are reasons to keep the air dry, any moisture-sensitive artifacts. So when it comes to drying air, there's two ways to do it. We can either condense it out or we can molecular sieve it out. You know, we, one is vapor compression process to take a surface lower than dew point, and the other one is adsorption using a desiccant. So there's consumer-grade products that are suitable for the home in both categories. Currently, what's offered, the vapor compression-based systems, they use lower energy and they cost less in the sizes and the volumetric flow rates that would make sense for a house. So that's how you would dry the air. And the last topic, you know, is like, why is this, quote, suddenly a problem? Well, it's not suddenly a problem. I'd say it suddenly became a problem about 10 years ago. Bottom line is energy code has irrevocably changed buildings, right? Energy code is saying, let's lower the cooling load here in Austin, right? In other climates, it's saying, let's lower the heating load. That's what your blower door test is about. That's why you have increased insulation. That's why you're solar heat gain coefficient is lower and your U factor is lower on your windows. That's why you're asked to have ducts inside the conditioned space. Because we want to run our large energy using equipment less, right? So here in Austin, it says, thou shalt run thine air conditioner less. That's what energy code is saying. But we have persistent humidity loads inside the home. Keep in mind, you and your activity are the humidity load. There is a lot through infiltration that can be reduced, but we still need to recognize that when you lower the cooling load of the building, you're running your air conditioner less, and your air conditioner was the only system in the building that used to accomplish drying. So it's very simple. It's very simple logic. Unfortunately, the actual trade practices are very slow to respond, right? And it's partly because the you have misaligned cost-benefit relationships. You know, we talked about developer-driven. But it's also the case that the industry and the society is just largely unaware of the overlap of the building sciences and the health sciences. It's not suddenly a problem. It's been growing for years. It's a big problem now. It's something now is the time to wake it up. 
uh, if you were here at the talk or you know, if we were live in person, I could show you some graphs showing that these cooling systems are not drying systems and they should not be relied on as such. And I could also show you that dedicated dehumidification in my climate oh, costs like 10 to 30 cents a day. So it's not a big deal. So the last two categories are ventilate and filter, and I'll just touch on them briefly. So when we talk about ventilation, I think it's actually good to talk about what's not ventilation, right? And what's not ventilation is the term a building's got to breathe, right? The building does not need to breathe. Nothing in the building needs to breathe. The people need to breathe, right? Nothing associated with the building materials itself has a metabolism that you want to encourage by breathing. So what you want to think about is ventilation is not an air leaky enclosure, Ventilation is not pulling air from random spaces like your crawl space or a wall cavity or the hole under your kitchen sink where the drain pipe goes, right? That's not ventilation. What ventilation is, is you know, sort of in priority order, is removing the source. Like, you know, if you could cook outside or you take that combustion, decorative combustion uh, fireplace outside, that's great. But then there's two things that we're doing with ventilation. We're doing exhaust ventilation. That's to get the particles out, to get the gases out, to get the moisture out. And then there's fresh air ventilation, which is to bring in clean air, right? So first we get the bad stuff out, then we bring the clean air in. And it's just like your car, right? You have the engine, which pulls clean air in. You have combustion. You have the exhaust pipe, which puts polluted air out. So we know these systems, right? And the exhaust system in your car, um, we didn't ask. You weren't asked, hmm, what size air intake should we have? What size pipe should we have? Where should the exhaust pipes go? What should they be made of? It's cuckoo that we ask our homeowners, what kind of filter do you want? Do you want an ERV? Do you want a dehumidifier? Wrong. That's no longer acceptable. You're the professional. Or if you don't know the answer, you know, hire a professional. Say, what are the climate zone appropriate enclosure and mechanical systems that deliver conditions that support human thriving? Right? And put those in your home. So getting the polluted air out, really this is about cooking, right? This is a range hood with a deep sump. And a deep sump just means like an upside-down bucket has a deep sump where an upside-down plate doesn't. So these flat-bottomed uh, range hoods, really bad idea. You've just lost the ability to have passive elements support indoor air quality, you know, free forever. Another one is downdraft, you know, Boy, oh boy, have I gone around and around on downdraft range, hood, range hoods. There are people that will adamantly support that they work. If you, at least from my experience, if you look carefully, the people that are adamantly supporting that their work are in two camps. They are somehow associated with distribution or sales of those products, or meaning even a salesman at a store, or they are the manufacturer of those products, or they are a designer that would really like to have a downdraft range hood work because it's challenging to design around good health without that happening, right? Oh, I want this certain floor plan. I want my range to be here so I can look out at the lake while I cook. And no, I don't want a range hood over my head. Well, if you're going to solve the problem for multiple dimensions of beauty at the same time, then you need to solve the the problem of pollutant capture coming off of the main source indoors, which is cooking. If you don't solve it, you didn't solve it. Recognize that. Try to solve it next time. So other sources indoors, you know, gas combustion generally, right? Definitely don't want a gas water heater. Definitely don't want a gas furnace indoors. And we've talked about some of the other, like, 
ways to get moisture out. But there's also your dryer vent, which is important. And, you know, there's equipment and systems to make this happen, and you just need to pay attention to it. This is where uh, fresh air ventilation comes in, right? You've, you're getting the polluted air out. Now you want to bring fresh air in. Well, the basic principle of bringing fresh air in is, is there a way that I can benefit from having this dry, cool air mass inside my home to help me when I bring in the hot, humid air mass from outside? The answer is yes. That's what an energy recovery ventilator does. Is there a way I could benefit from this hot, you know, this warm air mass that I have inside when I need to bring in frigid indoor or outdoor air indoors for ventilation? Absolutely yes. That's what an HRV does. So ERVs, HRVs, gosh, I think they're in something like 2% of American homes, maybe even less. Somebody was just telling me maybe 1%. I mean, it's astounding. You know, we're so far behind Europe and Asia on this. ERVs should be part of your def- your your lexicon. You should learn how to get them installed in your homes. Um, same thing with dedicated ventilating dehumidifiers as a first step. Okay, last topic is filter. So five topics again. Start with a good enclosure, minimize indoor emissions, keep it dry, ventilate, and filter. So when it comes to filtering, you know, we've already laid the case for this. Really, you just need to remember that particulate matter pollution in our homes is everywhere. It's created mechanically and chemically. Um, Many of these particles are toxic or known toxins. The size of the particles matters. That means choosing your filters matters. It enters the body through our lungs and our skin, and serious health outcomes can ensue. PM 2.5... And let's just say fines and ultrafines. So that's PM2.5 and PM1 and PM.1 or 0.5, depending on how you see it categorized. This represents the majority of sources of indoor air-related sickness. It's very important. The filter is a very poignant moment for your home, right? To dismiss it as something that's out of sight, out of mind, out of budget. It happens, but it's not skillful. Yeah, there's a study from Lawrence Berkeley, Bill Fisk there, showing economic benefits always exceed costs, you know, in terms of a cost-to-benefit ratio when it comes to um, putting in an effective particulate capture system. And we can also talk about the MERV rating system, but the bottom line is you want to have like a, a MERV 13 minimum and even go MERV 16, 17 HEPA. Um, air purifier is another very big topic. Uh, to summarize in a sentence, you know, that if it's a... Uh, it's a, if it's a very good portable room air cleaner that's doing particulate capture and maybe has some activated carbon or alumina plus HEPA filtration, fantastic device. Some of these more active systems that are plasma-based or ion-based or ozone-based, at the very gentle end, you could say more research needs to be done. And at the more extreme end, you could say it's not certain or even has been shown that many of these devices... Um, create constituent molecules that are not good for us, right? So more work needs to be done on that, and we will be digging into that more on future episodes here. Thank you for making it through to this spot. We're basically done. I just want to wrap up with a few thoughts, right? Design around people, a good building follows is very simple, right? We, we, have, we have some basic themes that it's, it's time to just say them, right? You know, it's enough with using our occupants as science, science projects and We can do better than designing around eyes, egos, and first cost. And, you know, I also want to talk about 
our sophisticated taste for other areas of our world. Like we, we consume technology in a fairly sophisticated way. We consume food in a very sophisticated way. Why is it we don't have the same aspirations for our indoor environments? Right? It's really time to hit reset. It's time to, for everyone to stop and recognize that what you don't see, it does matter. And that when you're sitting across the table on a home design with your client, you can be the advocate for health as home intervention or not. You know, you don't need to wait for your client to be the unicorn that asks for that. You can ask for that. You can push for that. So the new normal is home as health intervention and architect as advocate. Whole project team as advocate. So thank you guys very much for listening. We'll talk to you next time.